Hello, and welcome back to History Obscura. Tonight, I've dug up my issue of Life magazine from December 12, 1955, again, because I really want to share with you the Epic of Man Part 2, The Dawn of Religion. If you want to hear Part 1, you're just going to have to dig out your own issue of Life magazine from November of 1955. Once upon a time, awed by the phenomena of nature and by the mysteries of life and death, man evolved a belief in higher powers and rights to honor the spirit world. Among many definitions of himself composed by man in the course of centuries of self-preoccupation, there is one which asserts, man is an animal that prays. Although it is obvious that no single phrase can adequately delineate so intricate a creature, the fact remains that from the threshold of his emergence as the dominant mammal on Earth, Homo sapiens apparently has possessed some form of religion and a belief in his immortal soul. The evidence derives not from any written records, for writing was invented a mere 5,500 years ago, but from the physical vestiges of a prehistoric culture whose fragmented traces linger still in the limestone caverns of Europe, where Paleolithic man once dwelt. Inscribed in the inner chambers of these ancient caves are the paintings of skilled artists, wrought with astonishing felicity and loving care, and embellished with mystic symbols hinting that the inspiration behind them was not aesthetic, but magical or reverent. Embedded in cavern floors lie the graves of the old Stone Age dead, interred not casually, but with obvious ceremony. The bones are accompanied by personal possessions, tools, and trophies laid down for possible use in the unseen world. For what other reason would man bury his dead with objects used in life, save that he foresaw another existence beyond the grave? And how did this belief arise so many centuries before any of the great religions of historic times? One answer to these questions stems from man's predicament as a highly observant creature in a mysterious world of nature. Ignorant of the physical laws of causality, early man could only imagine some all-powerful and supernatural volition behind such ordered phenomena as the daily rising and setting of the sun, the cycle of the seasons, and the nightly rotation of the starry celestial sphere. He could only tremble in fear and wonder at the unpredictable paroxysms of the natural world. The sudden rifting of the earth and the blinding scintillation of lightning in the opaque sky. Here surely lay the origin of his belief in the supernatural. For too primitive man, as one anthropologist has observed, the supernatural is what lies outside the light of the campfire. But early man must have been aware of equally mysterious and alarming occurrences that took place not in the exterior world, but within himself. What, for example, could he think of sleep? The difference between sleep and consciousness suggested that there existed within him something which transcended his body, 
something which could go away and, in dreaming, lead an active life of its own, traveling wondrously through space and time. And finally, death confronted man with the ultimate mystery. When any individual died, the vital attributes of his body disappeared. Warmth, movement, speech, breath, volition. Where did they go? Since the flesh itself disintegrated, the body could only be a dwelling place for the spirit that inhabited it in life. Hence, in the same way that man interpreted the many caprices of nature as the activities of supernatural beings working behind the perceivable aspects of the physical world, so he probably explained the riddles of life and death, the enigma of man's self, and the existence of all living creatures. He concluded that inside the bodily form of every human being, and every animal, there must reside an agent that governed the ways in which the animal and outer man behaved. In the words of Sir James Fraser, the great British anthropologist, the animal inside the animal, the man inside the man, is the soul. Although all wild animals confront death hourly in a world of predators, man alone knows that death is inevitable. It is this shattering, intolerable realization that in time he will lose his own identity, which more than any other factor must have given rise to the first crude forms of primitive religion. Man's unique capacity for perceiving himself in relation to nature can be partially explained in physiological terms. His singular evolutionary specialization among animals lies in the enlargement of those areas of his brain from which derive his faculties of memory, idea association, calculation, anxiety, and self-restraint. From these higher cerebral areas stem man's qualities as a rational social being, his discipline and conscience his ability to formulate ideas and abstractions, to suppress his passions and aggressive instincts, to forego immediate satisfactions for future rewards, and above all, to worry. Man, says anthropologist William Howells, is nature's great worrier. He can worry alone, and he can worry in unison, always with justice. By virtue of his supreme physical endowments, the specialized human brain and intensely passionate temperament, man thus inherited his agonizing awareness of 1. the evanescence of life, and 2. his dilemma as a social animal, everlastingly torn between his selfish impulses and desires, and the necessities of the human group of which he was a part. To maintain equilibrium and sanity in the grip of these realities, early man evolved diverse systems of social and religious ethics, far removed, of course, from current conceptions of civilized religion, myths to provide explanations of natural phenomena, ceremonies to influence the spirit world, taboos to provide discipline. Studies of primitive peoples living in the world today lead to the belief that the structure of Paleolithic society consisted of small clusters of families joined together in hunting bands. 
The ethical leadership of such bands probably resided in a kind of religious practitioner or medicine man called a shaman, who combined the functions of priest, doctor, teacher, and policeman. To the shaman fell the tasks of settling crises within the social organism, instructing the young in myths and traditions, and presiding over rituals of puberty, fertility, and death. The shaman is found today among most extant hunting people. He was the first professional specialist, and his profession was the most venerable of all. For it was he who mediated between man and the invisible spirit world, where lay the answers to the awful mysteries of life and death. To anthropologists concerned with the problem of reconstructing the religion of Old Stone Age man, there are available only two sources of deductive information. One lies in his artifacts, the paintings, the implements of stone and bone, sculpture, graves, and other mute traces of his tenancy on the earth in the penumbra of prehistoric times. The other derives from analogies found in the religious paintings, sacred relics, and rituals of contemporary Paleolithic man, whose prime representatives are the Aborigines of Australia. Although their economy and technology are the most primitive of any people extant today, <coughs> the religion of the Aborigines is extremely complex. It appears to be a characteristic of man that, however he may lag in other respects, he is nevertheless able to formulate intricate cosmologies, mythologies, and ethical codes. Like that of prehistoric man, insofar as it can be discerned, the religion of Australia's Stone Age tribesmen is based on a belief in an unseen spirit world from which all living creatures came and to which, in death, they ultimately will return. In their view, all the observable phenomenon of nature and the destinies of all men and all animals are governed by personal powers in the spirit domain, which may be influenced by man if proper reverence is accorded them through sacred symbols and sacred shrines. Philosophically, the Aborigines look on life as a reciprocal relationship between man and nature. If man does his part, then the spirits which activate the natural world will cooperate. Reverence alone, however, is not enough to guarantee that new life will appear. The Aborigine believes that man must also repeatedly reenact in symbolic ritual the deeds of his ancestral spirits. For it is only through ritual that man, helpless to control nature, can best hope to abet the spirit forces and thereby promote the general welfare. The Aborigines practice two main kinds of ritual, rites of intensification and rites of passage. Their ceremonial life, in which these observances are intricately interwoven, centers around the recreation of their religious myths. By acting out the exploits of legendary heroes, they preserve and inculcate ancient traditions and thereby express the unity of the clan. But before a man can participate in these rites, he must undergo initiation, for it represents a gateway to the clan's secret life. This consists of several stages, 
alternating instruction in the myths, ethics and sanctions of society with such ordeals as circumcision, the knocking out of teeth, the removal of body hair, decorative scarring and bloodletting. The purpose of initiation is to usher each boy into adulthood and integrate him in the social order. Circumcision symbolizes the severance of the umbilical cord and the youth's emergence into a new life. In some tribes, the rite is performed when boys are 7 to 10 years old, in others at puberty. In each case, it represents the climax of the first ritual of manhood. As he passes from rite to rite and from ordeal to ordeal, the initiate experiences a growing sense of pride in his admission to the inner shrine of tribal society and his new status as custodian of its mythology and secret rituals. In doing so, the range of his interest is extended from himself to the tribe as a whole. Involved in every aspect of Aborigine religion and social life is the unifying strand of totism. That is, the belief that every individual and group from family to tribe is the guardian of mythological symbols and is allied spiritually with some animal or plant species, depending on that species for its well-being. To say that the totems of a certain clan are the wallaby, the bee, or the white cockatoo is to say more than those animals are family mascots. The totemic animal or plant is believed to share human feelings and to react as a human being. According to the concept of totism, men, animals, and plants constitute a single spiritual entity. Such rites of increase, for example as the wallaby dance, are methods of cooperating with nature. Not magically, with the purpose of inducing abnormal occurrences, but in reverent acknowledgement of the bonds between nature and man. This ceremonial relationship thus links the ordinary workaday world and the eternal dream time, the spirit realm which undergirds the entire system of nature. The totemic system of the Aborigines is infinitely elaborate. For example, the individual may acknowledge one particular animal as his spiritual associate, while another is revered by his kin, another by his secret cult or lodge, another by his clan. There are other and still larger interlocking relationships so that a single person may owe allegiance to three or four totems simultaneously. Socially, the benefits of totism may be compared crudely to the fraternal systems of Western society. It ensures that no man need feel alone. In a broader context, it establishes rules of behavior for all occasions. It regulates marriage, education, religious practices, and diplomatic relations. It serves, finally, as a powerful factor in preventing warfare in that it renders possible the settlement of inter-clan disputes through such symbolic rituals as the Makarata ceremony. The religion of these people, with its recognition of man's intimate relationship to nature and its conviction that the human spirit transcends time and space, is thus a highly evolved intellectual edifice. In this context, the Aborigines are by no means primitive.
We are very apt to underrate the philosophical powers of primitive people, observes anthropologist A. Pay Elkin of the University of Sydney. But the absence of clothes does not imply an absence of thought. That their religion has its roots in the depths of prehistory cannot be questioned, and that a similar, if less complex, form of belief prevailed among Paleolithic men 100,000 years ago is also an indubitable fact. For in certain caves in Western Europe there have been found the skulls of many bears, arranged with obvious ritualistic care upon stone shelves. With them have reposed, through millenniums, the telltale implements of Neanderthal man, hinting powerfully of ancient rites. In the light of present knowledge, those secret rituals whereby the giant Paleolithic cave bear was worshipped, exercised, or appeased, may have represented the first religious ceremonies of mankind. My, 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 what an adventure it has been for man. Man, 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 man. A bit of an endnote here. Modern anthropologists tell us never, ever to equate prehistoric tribes with those of modern day, even if they do live outside of cities and rely on hunting and gathering. In fact, even the denominations of Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, these have fallen very much out of fashion. As I said, this is Life magazine in 1955. It was what it was, friends, just as once Christopher Columbus was a national hero, and now he is just Christopher Columbus. Thanks for listening. Please remember that you can sign up for ad-free episodes via Patreon. You can also send us a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash history obscura. Good night.